0: Take it it away. All right, let's do this. Don't drop the ball. (laughs) uh, great setup. Uh, Matthew (laughs) Matthew chapter 18. Um, Let me say this before we kind of jump in this morning. I talk about this occasionally. Uh, One of the cool things about walking through a book of the Bible uh, verse by verse is it gives you an opportunity to read it. And I want to really challenge and encourage you, if you don't, uh, to get a Bible. Like if you don't have a Bible, order one. You can get them on Amazon and get them on Christian book distributor. You can get them just about anywhere now, uh, but get a Bible and bring it. And actually with your own eyes, get to kind of read through this as well as we're, as we're reading it out loud. Um, the translation we use is the new living translation, uh, ESV English standard version is another really good one. Those I think are the two best in my opinion. Um, and so, but I just want to encourage you to do that. I think you'll, you'll find more. Uh, You get more out of it when you're actually reading it. I know you trust me that what's up on the screen is really real, but I could totally throw some stuff up there and you'd be like, well, the Bible says it because it set it up on the screens. Um, But get one, uh, like this will really help you uh, retain a little bit more and also an opportunity to write things in there that years later, I'll go look through my Bible years from now and see things that I wrote down and all of a sudden remember either the message I heard Uh, or uh, the conversation I was having when I wrote that down. And so uh, I really wanna encourage you to do that, um, especially as we're walking through this book together. Uh, So we're in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew uh, 18 is one of the four pillars of teaching Matthew was written around. Just to give a super quick recap, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to confirm that Jesus was the guy, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the king, and he'd come here to establish this kingdom the redemptive reign of Christ. So it's, it's written to a, a Jewish audience. Now, what we know today, 2,000 years later, is most Jews today still reject Jesus as the Messiah. They still go, yeah, that wasn't the guy. It's the same thing that happened 2,000 years ago when they originally rejected Jesus as the king and, and rejected the kingdom. Uh, so, but the way it was written is it was written around five key pillars of teaching, so sections of teaching. You had the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through 7. We walked through that the setting of the 12 in Matthew 10, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And then today we're going to start in the fourth pillar, which is Matthew 18, which is teaching about the church or the family of God. Now keep in mind, God, uh, Jesus was establishing something new. Like for us, church is something it's, it's always been, we go, man, my, my parents went, my grandparents went, like church has always been a part, a, a sort of a staple of this culture. But what jesus started was something completely new something that they had never seen or experienced before and so he's teaching in light of this new thing this is how you're going to operate in this new thing and then matthew 24 and 25 is the fifth pillar and that's teaching on the end time and so end times and so the way matthew is constructed is these pillars five pillars were placed down first and then in between all of those pillars of teaching you just have narratives a lot of times the narratives are connected to one Central theme like Matthew 8 9 was about establishing that Jesus possesses absolute authority, but their narratives in there, and their and their stories that are woven together. And in and out of each of these pillars of teaching, you'll see the book of Matthew will say something like, When Jesus had finished these sayings or when he had finished teaching, and then it goes into a new narrative. In fact, Matthew 19, verse 1, if you want to skip ahead a little bit, that's how Matthew 19 opens. It tells us that the teaching section is concluded and now we're moving back into, back into narrative. So we get into this this fourth pillar, Matthew chapter 18, and I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. Um, When you read through a book, when you read through chapters, you've gotta keep the content together. Like you don't just grab a verse and and build, you know, some theological belief or build your case on something based on one verse. You take the whole thing together. So Matthew 18, a couple of things I want you to keep in mind is number one, Jesus is establishing something new. So because it's new, there are things about it that are unknown. Jesus is teaching that we are family. The gospel is what, is what makes us family. All throughout the New Testament, this is introduced. This was foreign to the, to the disciples. Calling God Father, calling God Abba or Daddy or Papa, those are, th- that was completely uh, foreign to them. So Jesus is building something new. He's teaching them that we're family. 1 John 3, 1 tells us that this is how much God loves us. He calls us his children, and that is what we are. We're introduced to the idea of being family. And Jesus is creating this thing that's new and better. And he's showing us in light of that, how we're supposed to function relationally. Now, this isn't exhaustive of all relationships, but you're gonna see some things a little bit today, but mostly the next few weeks that talk about how we're to interact relationally in this this new thing. Because the way we function in other relationships, the way we function, the way we, we fight, the way we have conflict, the way we tend to give up on each other and just walk away from relationships. Jesus says, I've come to establish something new, something different, something better, and it's not gonna, the way it used to work is not the way it's gonna work now, not in this new thing that I've come to establish. So keep that in mind as we walk through Matthew chapter 18. The first few verses, you're gonna be like, I don't get that, but eventually it's all gonna start to make sense, but Matthew chapter 18, verse number one, it says, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Matthew 18 opens with a, with a tired conversation. We've been here before. They've debated this before. They've asked Jesus this before. James and John's mom have come to Jesus and asked for Jesus to let one sit on his right hand and the other one sit on his left. But there's still some level of debate or some level of uncertainty among the disciples about what the pecking order is gonna be. Jesus has talked a lot about how he's gonna die. He's talked about how he's gonna suffer in Matthew 16, Matthew 17. He's continually keeping this in front of them now. So they know we're going to Jerusalem, he's gonna suffer, he's gonna die. Jesus said he's gonna rise from the dead. I don't think the disciples believe that. And so their questions are, okay, if Jesus isn't gonna be here anymore, if the man is no longer gonna be on the scene, then who's the next man? Who's who's the next gap? Who's gonna lead this group? And you likely had some uh, debate going on among them, just simply about their prominence. Like take Peter, for instance, Peter, just two chapters earlier, Jesus said about Peter, he said, he said about himself, he said, I'm the, the, the boulder that this church thing is going to be built on. But he says, but Peter, you're going to be a small stone. You're going to be a pillar in the first century church. You're going to play a significant role. Or maybe John, the book of John, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loves. I mean, not every there's 12 of them. Only one of them only one of them had that nickname, so maybe John was like, "Man, I'm the one he loves. Clearly, I'm going to be the most important," or maybe James. James says, "Man, me, Peter, and John we're the only three of the 12 that got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration that we looked at in Matthew 17. The other nine didn't come up here. So clearly, it's one of the three of us. We're going to be the most significant in the kingdom," and there was likely debates going on between them. There was certainly some jealousy among the, the other nine. And if you think about it, like, wouldn't you be jealous of that? Wouldn't you be envious of that? I mean, just think about for all of them, they're like, we all gave something up. Take Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was wealthy. He, he had need of nothing, anything he wanted he had. He was set for life. And he gave all of that up in pursuit of Jesus. Like if I'm Matthew, I'm going, these fishermen like nobody wanted them. The only people who would hire him was, was his dad. Like what did he give up? What did he sacrifice? They were poor. They didn't risk anything financially and they followed you. I risked everything financially in order to come after you and to follow you and now the question of greatness and it's possibly one of these three and not me. Like you can, you can understand the tension that existed, especially in light of the way greatness was determined in that society, which is the same way it's determined today. Like when we think of greatness in terms of sports, we think of the guy who's got the, the best stats, the guy who's got the most rings. We're gonna give away MVP trophies to, uh, to, um, to our, our favorite sports over the course of the next several months. Nobody's going, hey, the, the, the 25th man on the Major League Baseball team bench, he's in the conversation for MVP. No, it's the guy who's got all the stats, the guy who's accomplished all the things. If I told you today you could go to lunch with either Jeff Bezos or the guy who sweeps the local Amazon warehouse? Like which one are you gonna choose? Like we're gonna choose the guy that is known, the guy that is prominent because that's how we view and that's how we measure greatness is who has accomplished the most, who is the most well-known, who is the most prominent. And so the disciples say, in light of that, in light of what some of the other guys got to do, who's the greatest, who's gonna be in charge? How are we gonna rank in this kingdom? And in verse two, it says, Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's interesting, Jesus responds to their question by answering a question they didn't even ask. They said, who's the greatest? And he said, let's talk about who's gonna get into the kingdom. He says, like, like, like make sure you don't don't confuse the order. He was sending a message subtly to the 12, and a message that he was sending to them is the message that's still true today. Jesus was saying to them, just because you're in this circle, just because you're following me, doesn't guarantee you a spot in the kingdom. You're debating who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom, and it's not even certain that every one of you is actually gonna be there. And the same conversation, the same question for us today, the, the answer is still the same today. Like for some of us, we've convinced ourselves that because we go to church, man, we're here every Sunday because our, our, our parents, because I was raised in the, the church community, because I got some perfect attendance Sunday school pin or because I serve in a ministry team or because I write a check and put it in the, in the bin on my way out of here, that somehow, some way that's gonna guarantee me access into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says to the 12, he says, don't, don't forget before you can debate greatness, you got to make sure that you understand and remember who's actually going to be there because in that group of 12, there was one that we know for certain that being Judas, that wasn't even going to be a part of the conversation. And he says, it comes back to repentance. Repentance was the message of John the Baptist, repent and turn from your sins. Now the word repent is a is a churchy word but it's a really important word repent simply means to like change direction or to change our mind about something like you think just directionally if you're driving one direction and you turn around that that's what the word repent means you're changing directions or you're you're changing what you believe about something repentance can happen in in all areas of life as parents we've all been there where you know, with your kids, it's like, you're never gonna do that again. And then a few hours go by and you cool off and you're like, well, you're never gonna do that again for the next week, but eventually you can do that again. And so that's what what repentance means, is it means we just simply, we change our mind. In the context of this conversation, repentance is a change in our direction, a change in our mind regarding our sin and our separation from God. Repentance is when we say, I am no longer gonna look to all of the good things that I can do. I am no longer gonna pin my faith and my hope to the belief that I can be a good enough person. I'm no longer gonna gonna put my faith in the hope and belief that one day I'm gonna stand before God and if my good outweighs my bad, he's gonna let me in. I'm no longer putting my faith and trust in that. And instead I'm putting my faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus and Jesus alone in order to reconcile me back to God. That's what the gospel is. It's believing that Jesus lived, died, was buried and rose again to pay for my sins, to reconcile me back to God, that my sin created separation between myself and God. And there is nothing that I can do to bridge the gap. There's nothing I can do to fix it. But because of what Jesus has already done, I don't have to try to do anything. All I have to do is repent, change my mind, change direction and put my faith and trust in Him and Him alone in order to be reconciled, to be a part of this kingdom so they say, who's the greatest? And Jesus says, before you can talk about greatness, we gotta talk about who's even gonna be there. Said, so you've gotta repent and you've gotta turn from your sins and you've gotta become like little children. So this little child that he took and he put among them, the Greek word that's used for little children is the, the word for a toddler. So like just think in your mind about, about toddlers for a second. Toddlers are probably my favorite age, largely because I don't have them anymore. Um, but like toddlers right now, I, like I find them really entertaining. One of my favorite things about toddlers is all of the things that they can do that I wish I could do. Like a toddler can fall asleep anywhere they want for any reason and nobody thinks twice about it. Right, toddlers can walk they can walk around with a shirt on, beer belly hanging out, like they can do whatever they want. I, I do it and Clayton High School asks me to leave, you know. Um, but, you know, they can, they can do that. They can walk away from a conversation that is boring them without giving an explanation. Like, toddler just walks away and nobody thinks twice about it. Like, I'm like, man, these are all things I wish I could do. They could give no to the answer to any question just because they're in a bad mood and they just feel like saying no. But when you think about a toddler, you think about uh, the, the, the things about them, about what it's like to be at that small age. But the question is, what is Jesus driving at? What Jesus is driving at when he talks about becoming like little children is he's talking about the simplicity of a child. The message of the gospel is a simple message, but it's a message that as adults we've complicated. Like the message of the gospel is good news to all people that god's free offer of eternal life is available to us if all we have to do is put our faith and trust in jesus in jesus alone that's literally all we have to do to be reconciled to be god to be reconciled to god but as we get older we scoff at that like there's no way it's that easy it doesn't make sense if it sounds too good to be true then it probably is But for little children, it's not a complicated message. It's simple. Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for my sin. Jesus says we've got to embrace the simplicity of the mind of a child. You know, there's a reason why, I think it's 90% of people who will come to know Jesus will do so before the age of 18. It's the simplicity of a child. It's the willingness to believe a message that, that, that isn't e- always easy to believe, but to put aside all of the questions I have and all of the things I can't answer and embrace and cling to the one thing that I believe to be true. It says you've got to embrace the mind of a child to be able to embrace the simple message of the gospel. Then in verse four, he says, so anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, As I said, I think toddlers are entertaining, but they certainly don't rank high on the greatness scale. When you think about the greatest of all time, nobody's throwing two-year-old names into the ring. They're last in the pecking order. Toddlers have the least power. They make the fewest decisions. They have the least amount of freedom. They wait for others, they obey others, they follow others, but there's a humility about children that we often lack the older we get. The biggest thing that stands between you and I serving one another, oftentimes is our pride. But when you think about a young child, pride is probably the furthest thing from your thought. Like one thing little children don't possess is arrogance. And Jesus says, the humility of a child will lead you and I to assume the role of a servant, to willingly and joyfully lower ourselves to lift others up. That's why one of our values we say is that serving is our privilege. And it's not just our duty, it's not just our obligation, it is a privilege to lower ourselves and to lift others up. This is what Jesus modeled for us. And Jesus said, if you wanna talk about greatness, have the humility that will allow you to put yourself aside, put your, your needs, your wants, your rights aside in order to lift someone else up and to serve them. And then in verse five, he starts to dive into, begins to dive into some of the, this interpersonal relationship stuff. Verse five, he says, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. Again, we're family, he's come to create something new. He says, anyone who welcomes a little child on my behalf is welcoming me. You and I can't love God and not love each other. Like 1 John teaches that we can't say that the love of God is in us if we don't in turn love one another. Verse six, but if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Is it me or did that just take like a Don Corleone turn? Like Breaking Bad or something like that. Like we literally are going to put you in cement and throw you in the ocean. Um, and a lot of times this verse, let me point this out. A lot of times this verse is used. People say, see, this is what happens if you hurt a child. I'm not saying that you're not going to suffer if you hurt a child, but you've got to keep the whole thing in context. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Because remember, Jesus took a young child and put it in their midst and used that as an object lesson. It's like, if I said this table represents the love of God, you wouldn't leave here today going, oh, the only place the love of God exists is in that table. You'd go, no, that's, a, that's, an, that's an example. You're using it as an object lesson. So Jesus is using this child to illustrate you and I, those of us that are, that are children of God. He says, this is what's going to happen for those that hurt one of these, my children. Uh, this way of of death was common in the first century. This is something the Romans were known to do. They would take these millstones that were used for grinding grain. They would weigh oftentimes like two or three hundred pounds. They would tie you to that, and then they would just simply throw the stone over overboard or off a cliff, and the weight of it would pull you, and you would, and you would drown. So Jesus says, when someone hurts one of my children, when someone causes one of these to to fall into sin or to stumble, it would be better for you for that to be your fate. And this is speaking to the depth of the love that God has for you and I, that God as our father has for us as his his children. I mean, think about it as a parent, how do you and I feel when someone hurts our kids? Like how would we feel if someone led our children astray or someone caused them to stumble? I mean, we'd be angry, right? Like we'd be hurt, we'd be upset. We would want to do anything and everything in our power to stop it or to fix it. We would want to make them pay. And remember, we are relational beings created in the image of a relational God. God is our father. And God offers a warning to those that would lead others astray. And he admonishes us and says, be careful about the way you deal with the relationships that you lead. Like in this room, every one of us are leaders. Like we're leaders at home, we're leaders at work, maybe here at Generation, maybe in the community. And a simple definition of a leader is a leader is just simply someone who's a step ahead. You may not be a step ahead of everybody in this room, but you're likely a step ahead of somebody. And anyone that we're a step ahead of, we're, we're leading. And Jesus says, be careful, don't lead people into sin. Don't be a stumbling block on their pursuit of Jesus. And I think when we think stumbling blocks, a lot of times we think extremes. It's like, oh, that's the person who, uh, that's the parent who buys alcohol for their underage, underage kids and their friends. Or, you know, that's the, the drug dealer that's like, man, the, you know, the first taste is free and then after that you gotta pay. And somebody uh, all of a sudden assumes this life of addiction and we go, man, that's, that's the stumbling block. But a stumbling block is anything that impedes progress. Anything we do, you could say it this way, anything we do that makes following Jesus more difficult is a stumbling block. And in that way, they can be a lot more subtle. Stumbling blocks can be constant criticism, like husbands and wives. Are you making it more difficult for your spouse to follow Jesus because you're constantly critical of the things that they do? Or hypocrisy like like moms and dads, is, is this us? Like are you one thing here and then when you leave, you're something different? And your kids go, I don't really want to follow Jesus because if, if that's what following Jesus looks like, being one thing in one environment and being something in another environment, I'm just not interested. Is that a stumbling block that we've put in their path? Or judgmental spirit, maybe insensitivity? Or how about enabling them? Like sometimes, I think the dinner bell, it's time to eat. (laughs) I'm hungry too. Um, uh, Maybe it's enabling them. Like, Like think about this, we're leading people, we're discipling each other. And for some of us, are we watching as somebody is moving further and further away from Jesus and we know the right thing to do is to come alongside them and say something, but yet we've convinced ourselves, oh, it's not my business, it's not my place. And so simply by enabling them, we are becoming a stumbling block on their journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. He offers a warning. Wherever you and I have influence, whatever relationships we are privileged enough to lead, our goal should always be to do what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He said, you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I'm following Jesus. Our lives should be marked by following Jesus and helping others do the same, that we would be the the people in each other's lives that are removing obstacles, removing barriers, rather than creating them. Then he goes on in in verse seven, he says, what sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Again, this this is a warning. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. So he talks about temptation. Temptation is inevitable. He's talked about the people who are doing the temptation or who are causing uh, us to stumble. But then verse eight, he he shines a light on personal responsibility. At the end of the day, we are still responsible for our choices. Uh, We we live in a culture and a society where we want it to always be somebody else's fault. That's part of the human condition. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They did the one thing God told them not to do. And God shows up and says to Adam, what have you done? And he says, oh, it's the woman you gave me. God says to the woman, what have you done? And she said, oh, it's the serpent. And it's always blaming someone else. It's always wanting or needing it to be somebody else's fault. You know, my my parents didn't do enough for me. My teacher didn't prepare us. The coach doesn't like us. It's always someone else's fault. And in verse 8, Jesus shines a light on responsibility. Verse 7, he says, yes, there there is a consequence for those that cause you to stumble. But verse 8, it becomes very personal. He says, if your hands or foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, there are times where we read scriptural Scripture uh, literally, and then there are times where we read Scripture intelligently. This is one of those examples, right? If we read it literally, what's going to happen? Next Sunday is going to be Pirate Sunday. We're going to be in here with <laughs> hook hands and eye patches, right? So we're not, Jesus isn't saying L- literally go gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands, but what he is saying, the, the progression that he's painting is, Think about things that we do with our hands that are wrong. Oftentimes the things we do with our hands start it with our eyes. Like I saw it before I, before I touched it. I thought about it before I saw it. And so what Jesus is saying is work backwards and address it. Address it at the eye level before it becomes a hands and feet level. Address it at the thought level before it becomes, before it becomes an eye problem. That's that whole root to fruit thing that we talked about in Matthew chapter 12, address what's going on beneath the surface. But it's showing us that God and Jesus are serious about sin because he knows what it's going to do to us as children. Remember this whole, this whole passage is about family. Like God knows what sin is doing to our interpersonal relationships. He knows what it's doing in our relationship with him. And so he offers this word, this word of warning. And then in verse 10, he circles back to talk about, to talk about his love and the care and the things that we have by being a part of this family. In verse 10, it says, beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly father. Verse 10 is is really cool. Um, Some people talk about guardian angels. I don't know that every one of us has a guardian angel necessarily. But every one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have angels right now, your angels that are in the presence of the heavenly Father. The book of Hebrews, it tells us that angels are sent to serve and to minister to us. There is this activity that's happening right around us that we can't see. There are things happening in a realm that that we can't see, that's invisible. That's why sometimes when you're sitting there and you're struggling and you just feel this sense that, 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 that you're being ministered to. Maybe it's in the form of scripture, or maybe it's just in the form of, of peace. It's the presence of these angels that were sent to, to minister to us, to minister to us on behalf of, of our Father. And then verse 12 says, if a man has 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the other, uh, than more than over the ninety-nine that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Again, remember the context: we're family. Jesus is coming; is come to establish something new. This is what it means to be a part of a family. Because I'll be totally honest with you: the way my brain works. If I had a hundred sheep and I lost one, that's really not that big of a deal. Like it feels like acceptable loss. Like if you're in the business world, you're like, man, you still got I can't eat 99 sheep. So like losing one is not that big of a deal. It seems like just sort of the cost of, of doing business. But shepherds were not owners of sheep, they were caretakers. The sheep belonged to someone else. And if a shepherd lost a sheep, they were on the hook to replace it. Now shepherds were, likely the poorest of all in the first century, they didn't have the money to replace the sheep. So they had to go find a way to to bring it back. In fact, the only time it was acceptable was if the sheep was eaten by a predator, but in order to validate that, the shepherd would have to go get whatever was left of the carcass and bring it back to the owner to confirm that something had in fact eaten it. So he's using this to point us to the love that God has for us. That that God loves generation, but God doesn't love generation collectively, he loves us individually. That that, that every one of us in here matters as much as, as, as anyone else. That just like a parent, if I said to you as a parent, if you have like six kids, again, I'd be like, man, if you got six and you lose one, you still got five. Uh, but if I told you like, which one, which one would you be okay to lose? You'd be like, none of them, like they all matter. And this is the the point that that he's making that this type of love that God has for us is similar to what you see the pursuit that a shepherd has in order to get a wandering sheep back. And it's not like the shepherd just took a right hand turn and didn't tell the sheep. Like the other 99 got the point. The one chose to wander. And the shepherd goes to great lengths to bring it back. It's the song, Reckless Love, that we sing, right? he, He chases us down, fights till we're found, leaves the 99. When we sing that, that's what we're singing about. That shepherds would put themselves in reckless positions, at times dangling over cliffs, looking in dark, desolate areas, climbing mountains, Shepherds were shepherds were known to regularly put themselves in harm's way to do what appeared to be reckless in order to save one sheep. It speaks to the love that the Father has for those of us as children. You know there are going to be times where we wander. There be times when we yield to temptation times when we choose self over surrender, times when we're indifferent, times when we feel like we have stepped beyond the reach of God's grace and God's love. And listen to me, I know right now, there are some of you in here this morning that that's how you feel right now. That you're telling yourself, if I were a Christian, I wouldn't have done, if I were truly a follower of Jesus, if I love Jesus, I wouldn't consistently come back to this same destructive pattern in my life. I wanna remind you of God's love and God's pursuit of you, of God's grace. Romans 520 says that God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. I want you to listen to me this morning. Sin can never take us to a place that God's grace and love isn't already there. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're gonna do today, what you're gonna do tomorrow. We can never outrun God's love. And when we wander and when we drift and when we walk away just like the shepherd seeks the one that has lost, God our Father, because we're family seeking us. I want you to know this morning that he's not given up on you. Again, parents, it doesn't matter what our kids do, what they say, what they tell us they've chosen to believe and value, my kids will always be welcome in my home. They will always have a seat at my table. They will always be loved by me. That no matter what we do, we can never outrun the love of the Father. You know, one of the things I think that we've done in our, our culture today is we've reduced repentance in a lot of ways. to It's a salvation conversation like repent, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. And what we've forgotten as followers of Jesus is the daily need that every one of us in here has to repent. Like to allow the Holy Spirit to shine a light on what's broken in our lives, to convict us and then to bring us to change, to show us what it looks like to become more like Jesus. So I want you to do this morning is I want you to bow your heads with me And I want to invite you right now to allow the Holy Spirit to look into your life. About David said in the Psalms, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked, wicked ways in me. Ask the Holy Spirit right now Holy Spirit, show me what is broken in my life. Maybe it's a relationship. You go, that relationship makes me feel good, but the Holy Spirit is shining a light and going, it may make you feel good, but it's not helping you become more like Jesus. Maybe it's the way you view stuff and money. Like it's mine. If I feel like throwing God a little bit, I will. If I see someone in need and I feel real bad, maybe I'll give a little bit, but, but we've got this, this sense that we possess it, it's ours. And the Holy Spirit says, that may have worked in your previous life, but as a follower of Jesus, you don't own anything, not even yourself, it's all mine. And he's showing, shining a light right now. and saying there is brokenness and there is sinfulness in the way you believe and function as it pertains to stuff and money. Maybe it's a secret habit Man, nobody sees it but me. And the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I see it. And whether you realize it or not, it is indirectly impacting the relationships around you. Maybe it's a hurt that you're harboring towards your parents, towards a friend, your spouse, your kids. and you're trying to convince yourself that you deserve to feel the way you feel and the Holy Spirit is shining a light right now and saying, that's not how the gospel looks. Holy Spirit, show us what's broken. And he shines a light on it and then we, and then we turn to him. Like we change our mind, we repent, we, Instead of going my way, I I, I instead say no to self and instead I choose to live and walk the path of surrender. Maybe you're here this morning and the repentance for you is that first step of repentance. You believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for your sins and to reconcile you back to God. But have you ever told him that? With your own words, have you ever said something like this? God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. There's nothing that I can do to pay for it. And so today I say yes to Jesus. I choose Jesus to be the reconciliation for my sin. Right now choose the path of repentance, the path of surrender. And then today, not only do we choose the path of repentance and surrender, but today we choose to walk in victory. Whatever it is that you're fighting, whatever it is that you're struggling with, Jesus has already been victorious over it. Jesus already became it for you so that you could walk in victory. Romans chapter six says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. The choice is yours, the choice is mine, the choice is ours. Next time you experience temptation, you say, I just can't. The reality is because of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus living in you, you can. We get to share in his victory It's like our favorite sports team, we won. We didn't do anything, but we share in the victory. We didn't do anything. Jesus did everything, but we share in that victory. I want you to stand with me. We're doing something a little bit different. A lot of times at this point, we sing a song as a a time of reflection, but the last few minutes, I've just wanted us to sit in this together. I know the one thing that you're gonna remember the most when you leave is the last thing you heard. We are family. God is our father. We are dearly loved children. There are gonna be stumbling blocks in our path. We are gonna, we're gonna fall, we're gonna wander, we're gonna stray. And we've got a God, our father, that is diligently and passionately and persistently pursuing us. We become the slave of whatever it is that we choose to obey. Let's walk in victory together. Father, we can only claim victory because of what Jesus has done. And we say, thank you for that. pray that we would take moments where we take our sin seriously. That we, I, that we identify it, we confront it, we turn from it. We live in victory because of Jesus and what you've done for us. Pray that we'd walk in it. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We are family. We are loved. We are dearly loved, sons and daughters of the King. Walk in victory today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Uh, God bless you. I'll see you next weekend.